Welcome to the Heroes of Reality Podcast, a podcast about the game of life and the hero's journey we all experience. Let's jump in with our host, Dylan Watkins, as he introduces today's guest. Hey there, young adventurers, Dylan here. And on today's podcast, I interview Dave Taylor. Now, we're going to be doing something completely new. This is going to be a, a live podcast done in real time. And this is going to be posted to a bunch of different channels. So if you're seeing this live, feel free to comment and post. Dave Taylor is an American programmer. I'm reading this from his wiki. Best known from former uh, id software employee. Uh, helped build Doom and Quake. But he's also has built a ton of games in the video game space as well as VR and a bunch of other things. He's a friend of mine I've known for a number of years and overall a an awesome human being. So without any further uh, delay, I'd like to welcome Dave Taylor. Hey, Howdy. Dave. What's up? You and your beautiful beard mustache thing you got going over there, man. It's great to see you. It's COVID facial topiary. <laughs> I like uh, everyone just kind of like, one thing I like about the whole post-COVID era is that you get a window in the people's worlds. And so you can kind of see what their life is like, whether or not the cat decides to come across and dominate the screen, or you just kind of like, you just let it all hang out, you know? Although... Yeah. I um, have... I've always been a big fan of looking stupid. <laughs> this is my new opportunity. Yeah. You're one of the guys that I've known for years that, like, you have this amazing ability to say things that wouldn't necessarily go over well, but with such a kind and pleasant voice. You're like, look, I'm going to say something that you're all going to hate, but I'm going to do it in such a beautiful way that you're not going to hate me. And I, really <laughs> understand that, and I don't understand that entirely, even though I really appreciate it. I'd love to learn. Is that a is that a learned skill? Is that something that how have you been able to kind of speak your truth in a way that you just you make you make that that uh, you you know you 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 tell someone to go to hell in a way that they ask you for directions. <laughs> so I'm just trying to understand that a little bit. <laughs> well, let's start by saying I don't always succeed at this. Um, okay. If indeed it's not just your perception, um, and if I am succeeding at it, um, my guess is because I've had lots of experience doing it the other way, mm. um, where I lay into people with all the vitriol I can summon, um, and it doesn't land well, and it doesn't uh, change minds, right? Um, and I just, I don't know, life's short, right? It's easier to just be honest and have fun with it, right? It's life's a stage. It's a, definitely a comedy, and uh, you know I, I think we have to look. Have you have you seen the uh, skit Helicopter Story by uh, Bill Burr? No, I haven't seen the Helicopter Story. You got to see that, man. Yeah, um, story about a guy goes up in a helicopter, and uh, it's awesome. Okay, okay. <laughs> and uh, it basically uh, shows you how funny real life drama can be all right I'll, I'll i'll take a look at it and we'll, we'll have that as a teaser yeah the, the one thing that i've seen though is that you, you see these things like oh you know uh life's too short just be honest say what it is but so many people like one of the things i've noticed and things i've i've think about is that like you know people say they um often people live lives of quiet desperation and they, they you know they go to, gra to the grave with like their you know stories unsung or or whatnot i probably butchered that quote but the actually being able to say this is not going to go over well but i'm going to say it anyways 
Like, just is there a thing where you you stop for a second and you catch yourself and you're like, you know what? This is not going to land. If I just said it the way it was like just harshly, it wouldn't land well. So then do you back up? Do you have any type of framework or you just go or you just kind of like lead with your heart? Is there any type of structure for that? Or is that literally just come in from a place of the, the joy you live? I don't know. I, um, I find out what I'm saying about when you do. Um, <laughs> sometimes I'm a half a sentence ahead. Uh, but most of the time it's, I'm hearing it at the same time you are. Um, and, um, I don't know. So I, uh, all through to high school, I was an introvert. Mm -hmm. Um, I just, uh, really terrified of, you know, most social interaction. And, um, in college I saw as an opportunity to reinvent myself. I ran for student government. And I, I really came out of my shell, you know, and, uh, and I, but it was, it was one of those things where, uh, I waited too long to do that. Right. So all the things that most people learn in grade school about what to do and what not to do, I had deferred all those <laughs> lessons till college. Um, so, and I was also really early, early, early on the internet, uh, before it was the internet, right? I was on BBSs on 300 baud modems. And so I was, I had a lot, I think more practice than most people. This was back in, I don't know, I guess I started in 83, um, wow. flaming other people that I hadn't seen or met, right? You originally trolling them or what? I mean, it's what the written word does when you don't have a human face behind it right um and uh and you know I, these things start as brush fires and they turn into raging you know torrents and thank god you can hang up the phone uh and and you know disconnect and, and thank god they don't have your address and thank god all these things and you you know you say all the stupid things you wouldn't uh face to face right it's it's freeing in a way but it's also it, it escalates things. Anyway, so I just learned, you know, how awful that can get. Uh, and then later on, much later on, after I came out, um, I joined a, you know, a, a board of peers and uh, we would have lively discussions about things. And for some reason, I, I think the new, um, for me anyway, being around peers who I had enormous respect for and made my penis feel amazingly small. I think that insecurity brought all that up again and I was all flamey again. Uh, and, um, and then again, I'd sort of realized, oh, okay, I can tamp this down, but it's an ongoing battle. And I think part of it is, uh, you know, when you talk to a comedian, they bombing is a part of what they do, right? And some jokes just don't fly. And I think if you're not bombing, if you're not messing it up sometimes, you're not pushing yourself, right? Um, yeah. That Well, that works too. And also in like the digital space as well. The one thing you're talking about is there's two things here. Uh, one being is it, it seems that like when we're growing up, a lot of people that are into technology, they form relationships with computers and software and things like that over people. And then mm -hmm. at some point in life, they either they either go super deep in that space where you're either only going to connect with people around the same topics. Like if you know if you talk to me about sports, it's going to be a struggle. 
But if we're going to talk about VR and other types of things, we'll, we'll go deep, and that's you can resonate on that level, and that's there's something to talk about. But it seems like in order to get good at that technology or get good at people, you kind of have to shut off that area of your life. It's very difficult to get very good social skills and very good com programming skills at the same time up the path. Like you have to like do one, then maybe switch the other and like all consume into the other. Have you noticed that or like, is that- Yes and no, like um, I'm working on a project right now with a junior coder who mm. um, was being very kind to me and saying, I really love your, I'm paraphrasing uh, probably how I wanted to hear what he said. Um, but he was basically was complimenting my my variable and function naming kung fu, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you know, if you if you get into code, how you name identifiers is a huge part of how readable your code is, how maintainable it is, how debuggable it is. Um, it's surprising how important it is. And uh, and that's really only something you get, I, th I think anyway, from you know exercising that muscle, like speaking and writing uh, for others, uh, so that you have an audience, you see whether they understand you, right? Mm. Um, and um, uh, bringing that into your code. So I, I think that's a an example of social skills that really helps coding, uh, and certainly working on teams. Oh my God, if you're if you're socially inept and you're trying to work on a team, it just, it can really get out of control fast, right? So I think, uh, yeah, there's also this aspect where like, um, you know, this, uh, you probably are aware if you interrupt the coder, the theory is that it takes about 15 minutes for them to get back into a place mm -hmm. of sufficient concentration to be productive again. Uh, and, you know, you really are building up these complex abstract structures in your mind navigating them as you code. And uh, so it is this sort of monastic kind of exercise. So it's funny when you're talking about that, I, I couldn't help it when you're talking about the um, building up in your mind, I almost thought of like the social communications, almost like almost like debugging in social situations. You're, you're using a debugger of like, oh, did this, did this phrase work well with this person? And then, you know, error does not compute. You're like, oh, I seem to have a seem to have a log file problem here. Okay, we're gonna go ahead and scrap that that code, you know, you know, you know. Landing. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I try to debug people. Um, <laughs> How do you debug people? What does that look like? It's a, it's a lot of asking questions, right? Which is not unlike debugging code where you're setting breakpoints and inspecting variables, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think um, when you've got someone who for whatever reason you're having trouble interacting with, yeah. um, and you start asking them questions, uh, sort of around the bits that you you might be hypothesizing or behind the problems behind the interaction. Uh, you can start to understand their their model of reality, right? And uh, and so I, I think that's probably one of the best ways ways to debug people is to ask questions. Now there's the cheap shots where you can uh, try flattering them. Um, there's also that trick where if you give someone something um, mm. before asking for something, they'll feel more obligated to acquiesce to whatever you're asking for. Um, yeah, exactly. Um, but fancy words. Um, <laughs> you've been doing the talkies. Um, so. Well, I think there's some of that too, and um, 
And for me, I, I definitely uh, owe a good chunk of my social skills to my mother and my brother. Uh, my brother, because he's just the funniest dude I've ever met. And uh, we used to make faces in the mirror at, at night when we would brush our teeth. And um, and I could never come close to what he could do. But, you know, it was like he set the bar up here. And so even if I was getting to 60%, it was still... You're the younger brother? I'm the older brother, oh, but the older he's brother. the funny brother. Yeah. Oh. And... Uh, uh, and so I think that helps. And then my mom is incredibly, has an incredibly dry, sharp wit, dark, sharp wit. And um, boy, I just feed off of that. Um, so. That is something that in the, when you grow up in a certain kind of environment and, and you are, you can literally, uh, you know, because I grew up in an, an Italian family where it was all about who can, who can be funny and witty and cut and like that we, 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 we wounded people with our words. And so yeah. it, was, it was a battle of wits. And so everyone was constantly sharpening their blade. But if you don't come from that environment and you come from a, say, more of a peaceful, any of those type of things. It sounds mean. Yeah, yeah. They're like, where'd that come from? They're like, oh, I, I thought that's what families do. This is how we bond, yeah. <laughs> we bond by insulting people. Yeah. Just, but you can do it inside the ecosystem. But if someone from the outside comes in and threatens it, then all, all hands face that direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so that's that was your skills growing up in that. And what caused you to jump into your love of technology and follow that path? Ooh, uh, well, that's pretty easy. Uh, so in junior high school, mm. this would have been Westport, Connecticut. Um, I was walking by a room, little tiny room, on the way to class, and I looked in, and I saw an Apple II Plus running lemonade stand that someone had just left running there. And I was like, holy crap, I got to go see what's going on here. Um, and I walked in, and there was a great big, like, uh, paper tape terminal hooked up to a PDP-11 or something uh, next to it, which I couldn't, which I hadn't noticed until I walked in there. Uh, and that was kind of interesting. But really, I was all about that Apple II Plus. And, um, yeah, I just saw that, and, I mean, it was... Electric. I mean, it was electric, uh, literally and figuratively. Like I, no, nobody had any. There were no classes for it, right? Uh, nobody else was talking about it. Nobody was playing with it. I mean, it was sitting there lonely on a desk, and uh, I was like, you know, I'm in love. Uh, so that that was the start of it for sure. It's, it's funny the way you describe that is the way some boys express their first love that they met. Right. You're like, I was walking down the hallway. I looked over and she was just there and she was all by herself and she seemed so lonely. And I, yeah. <laughs> and I, I wanted mean, to go spend time with her. Yeah. And, and then it was love at first sight. <laughs> yeah. Once you start digging in, right, mm -hmm. you discover that it's a whole um, system of physics mm -hmm. in its own little universe. Mm -hmm. And that if you learn that system of physics, you can be the god of that little universe. Right. You can make it do what you want it to do. And there's really kind of no limit to how uh, arbitrarily um, complex and interesting the things you can make are, right? Um, you know, e even on a one megahertz 64K system, mm -hmm. um, it's amazing what you can do. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's what I was drawn by. 
Yeah, there is a thing where you, you say you feel like a god or you feel like you almost like you have magical powers where if you can speak the secret language and you know the tomes, you can you can get the world to do things. That's one of the things I've always loved with at least in the world of like games and programming things like that. When you do your first interaction and, and you click a button and it turns green or you or you do a thing and you make something explode. Like any of those things you're like, I did that. I made that happen. And there's there it feels Almost like real digital magic, yeah. you know. Yeah. So, so what was your crossing from from just getting into programming to getting into game development? Well, first it was seeing games um, that I loved. Right. Um, the ones I was nuts for were the early Ultimas, Ultima One, Ultima Two, Ultima Three. Um, you know, but really everything wizardry. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, you know, side scrollers like Droll, um, uh, Rescue Raiders was a particular favorite, um, which was sort of a one-dimensional, real-time strategy game, kind of like one and a half-dimensional. Um, and uh, yeah, once I realized that these were made by people, I was like, well, geez, I want to be one of those people that makes them right. And um, particularly with the Ultimas, which were just so ambitious. Um, yeah, so, the first like kind of RPG style, not quite World of Warcraft, but just a, a large scale. Yeah, better, better than World of Warcraft, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> How and, are they and, better? Well, back then, um, you couldn't have really good graphics, right? Mm. Um, so you had to rely on great gameplay. Mm. And, um, and I think that forcing function really made it a, a, an amazing game. Uh, it's one of the reasons I still play NetHack today, even though it has even worse graphics than Ultima. It uses ASCII art text graphics, uh, and that forced it to be even better still than the Ultimas, right? Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's a <clears throat> it's a really interesting inverse relationship there between graphics and um, complexity and and sort of the interesting emergent behaviors you can get. But I think the other thing about Ultima is that. Um, the primary author, uh, Richard Garriott, mm. had written himself into the game as a character named Lord British. And um, in that way, he became the first celebrity game developer, uh, at least in my world, you know? And, um, and so I think that helped create sort of a, an identity thing going, you know, where I felt like, okay, well, here's somebody I would like to be like, as opposed to here's a thing I would like to do. Sure, yeah, you, you had someone to model. Yeah, I had someone to model, a, a role model. Yeah, and then the thing is, not all role models are in person. I always sometimes you subscribe to like virtual role models where you say, I like this person, I want to be like this person. Then you just start kind of absorbing any content you can find. Yeah. And, and, and do the math. And then you just naturally start to, you know, talk, move, walk like them because you just, it, there's a, what they do is so, so magical. I definitely never talk, move, or walk like Richard Garriott. Uh, no, <laughs> no. He's a he's an interesting creature. I did actually. He he published one of my games called Abuse uh, uh, back in the nineties, mm -hmm. and uh, we became friends, and mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, got to get more of him up close. He's actually a really interesting, like a an intellectual hedonist, right? So he, he's very all about pursuing things to entertain him and expand his world. Uh, but he really approaches all these things vigorously, intellectually, right? Mm -hmm. And um, 
I, I'm not like that. <laughs> like he, he likes going on physical adventures. He's actually flown to space. He's actually, he's gone to Antarctica. He's gone to the bottom of the sea. He's gone all these places. I, I don't want to go physical places. But, um, so. Yeah, you're, you're very much a creature of the internet. You're like, yeah, you're a, give me, give me strong bandwidth, a home, and and some some organic, all natural products. Hallelujah, brother. Um, yeah. yeah, and I, I would, I'd be thrilled if I could actually go back to restaurants. I do miss that because uh, I love being, you know, amongst people as kind of a wallflower. If there's still an introvert in me, it's like I just like people watch. You know, like sit somewhere and eat food, and people watch, and then maybe strike up a conversation with whoever ends up sitting next to me, right? Uh, I'm, I'm very, uh, I've embarrassed many friends by engaging waiters and nearby diners in conversation um, because I, I guess uh, a lot of people are just very insecure about that, I guess. Um, so. Well, I've noticed that too, like one thing, not being able to go to restaurants and things uh, was I noticed that a lot of ways that I got myself to do things, I would put myself around the energy of people and let mm. that energy carry me. So I want to be productive, go to a coffee shop and just like be in that energy. I want to go to a gym or I just go to a place where that energy carries me. And, and when everything got shut down, I had to find a way to like make the energy myself instead of yeah. consume it, cultivate it. And it's like, oh, it's not as fun because you can't drop into that that environment. And yeah, I do I definitely think you, the... In a, in a loving way, Dave, uh, you are very shameless. I would say I don't think there's not a lot of not a lot of shame around you and what you do. And you're like you just kind of like you own it, right? And so um, I do. Um, and all I have to pay for it with is these uh, these occasional ticks um, where the memory bubbles up when I go like that. Um, <laughs> and it's usually in the privacy of my own home, but. Uh, is it a tick because of other people are doing things or you're doing it or your thoughts? No, no, it's, about you? it's 110% always about something stupid I did or, or a stupid way I behaved. Mm. And, um, and now of course there's, you know, piles and piles of them. Cause as you say, I'm shameless. And, uh, so I'll be, I'll be sort of happily going cause now I've gotten all this practice. Like, Hey, I can just be whoever I want to be. Uh, but now there's this big long track record of all these, steaming poops that live all over the place and every once in a while one comes to mind um, <laughs> and, uh, well, like, oh. yeah no with that the when i think about those things that and i occasionally get those and I, I do have a question about it i almost feel it's like a um it's an emotional storm where you're like standing and all of a sudden this this quick moving storm will go past you and you're like oh god and it'll go past you like oh and then you'll think about it again like oh it comes back and that and it hits you how do you how do you weather those emotional storms? Is it do you just do you just sit and marinate in it? Do you do you, do you, well, do you, you know, pillow? Sometimes you get caught up in them, right? Yeah. Um, and so the trick is to be um, either dosed the right way with the sufficient caffeine or weed, um, or um, to be distracted is a great technique. So if I'm distracted by work, if I'm distracted by a game, if I'm distracted by a conversation, that's a great way to get through it. Um, or um, another great way is to just be mindful that my mind goes into these shitty states, right? And to be aware that, oh, uh, so like one thing I'll do is like a little survey of mm. 
the last 10 thoughts I've had. And if, if the last 10 thoughts are all negative, I'll ask myself, well, wait a minute, what are the odds that all these things are negative versus the odds that I'm in a shitty brain state where I interpret, where I dwell on negative things, right? And, uh, and so I'll, I'll stop myself, okay, all right, all right, you're being stupid. Think of something happy and fun and, um, and uh, embrace that. And one of the things, one of the tricks I'll use is um, is remembering what it was like as a kid, right? Rem just being, just embodying my childlike self again, uh, which wasn't about like, oh, I feel so bad about that thing I did. It's like, no, I was totally, I didn't give a shit about what I did, right? I was always thinking about like, what can I do this? You know, I can do this. I can, do, I can go over here and I can draw, or I can roll on the floor. I can roll on the floor. But how about we can roll three times on the floor, right? And and it's really more of this kind of feverish, like, what if? And I could, and and you know. I want, and, and I think a lot of it is your naivete of like how hard doing things well is, right? Um, and so I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll forcefully make myself stupid mm -hmm. um, about how hard something is and I'll just pretend uh, that it's easier than it is. And that, that'll put me in a much happier mood. Uh, so I, I, pretending helps, pretending is actually huge. <laughs> amazing mental kung fu you got there let me reflect back that a little bit you're talking about so if you if you feel like you, there's, a, there's a pattern of negativity right yeah and it's so many in a row you you shift out of the feeling of negative and you actually logic your way out of it and you use your logical brain to overcome your emotional brain prefrontal cortex to overcome your limbic well here's the problem here's the catch yeah, right so yeah, if you're in the shitty brain juice right then mm. um unfortunately, the brighter you are, the better you are at making the, the next negative argument about how awful everything is, right? Um, and uh, so you can really tie yourself in knots. Uh, I think the faster you think, and the, the more clearly you think, right? Uh, one of the things, I've, I've had chronic depression all my life, uh, and I think one of the things they, they've said, about, I've read about depressives is that um, while they do go into these little, navel gazing holes uh they all also have a capacity to sort of analyze their problems more deeply because they really kind of dwell on them right um and i think um i th i think the trick is uh yeah you can actually get caught up in thinking you're being logical about this without realizing it's it's a logical system steeped in shitty brain juice right and so you've you've got to you do have to either through, like I said, drugs, contacts, or luck, or whatever, realize, oh, I'm I'm in the matrix, and sort of wake up. And then uh, and then that survey trick is one of the things I'll do. Yeah. Um, and do you write it like, down, or is it just a mental, is it, is it like in your mind you have a running list? Yeah, like, it's not a totally accurate list. It's just, uh, you know, like if I'm thinking horrible thoughts, uh, like this week, I was thinking horrible thoughts about my productivity, which has not been where I wanted it to be. And um, I was, you know, dwelling on this. And then, of course, that would go back to where did this come from? And how did I design this into myself? And why do I suck so hard? And, and you know, what, where did my life go wrong? <laughs> just, you, you keep going back to this, these deeper, deeper yeah. base cases, right? And, uh, uh, and I think uh, you just sort of have to catch yourself uh, and say, well, wait a minute, it's all... If I'm if I'm so awful, 
um, why why do I still have friends? Why do people keep paying me to do things for them? Why you know why why do I have this loving family that still stays in touch with me? And um, and and, and then the, the other thing that will happen is that I'll have a, a meal um, that is just delicious, like the one I just ate, um, that'll just snap me out of whatever bullshit I'm telling myself and go, oh, my God, I'm so thankful that I get to put that in my face. Um, and this is just the greatest, right? Uh, so I, I, I think I, I'm, I'm a creature of simple, simple comforts, right? And uh, so if I'm having one of those, that'll help. But yeah, once you do, you know, go through that survey and go, wait a minute, I'm kind of going down this hole. And, and what's the use of analyzing where your life went, right? It's you're, you're in the now, right? Uh, and if, if it can't help you right now, then don't bother. And, uh, and so, I, you know, and so much of kind of improving yourself is just, you know, this is trite, but it's just being there in the moment. What can I do for myself right now, right? As opposed to planning, you know, years into the future or dwelling years in the past. Um, and if it's, even if it's a little thing that I can do right now, it's better than nothing. Right. Uh, and so that to me, that's just kind of, a, in a way, it's a kind of a s simple aspirin, right? Yeah. Like just do well, something and then, you know, I like it. No, it was making me think about when you're talking about the survey, you're like, and I like how you, looked at a ratio you're like what are the chances that all 10 of these things are terrible things that happen versus it is just my perception and and because the hard thing is whenever you level up in your, your consciousness or whatever you want to call it is you, you realize that you have this you and then you have the subject and it feels like this is the same thing like you know my life is terrible but it's just this filter perception but once you separate object and subject right and you're like okay i am not this this is i am not my brain and my thoughts or these things you actually have a tendency to level up in that space and then you're constantly de-separating yourself from those things you're attached to whether you're attached to you as a person or you connected to this planet or these other people but you you're able the, the way that you grow from that is you realize that you are not that thing and then you rise above it does that make sense yeah that's a good chunk of it another good chunk is realizing how the quicksand that is categorizing things, right? So you can categorize something, mm -hmm. uh, but by categorizing it, you lose information about it, right? Yeah. So um, we're we're really prone to self-destructive thoughts mm -hmm. when we try to squish who we are and what we're doing into nouns, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and even verbs, um, but particularly nouns. Um, and I, I think... Uh, the, the more you can push that aside and say, hey, look, you know, my brain is this amazing, fully associative computer, right? Um, it's designed to do a lot of processing well below my conscious level. Um, and it's doing this through these ridiculous connection counts, right? Um, let go, trust that, right? And, um, and, and instead, just focus on the little thing that you're your comparatively weak sauce consciousness can handle that one thing you can focus on at a time um, and trust in your subconscious to kind of uh, inform it with the right thing to do next. Right. Um, There's a power in that. I, I often feel that the, the, the subconscious is almost like a super AI, you know, where it, it takes in all the data sets and then all of a sudden an answer will come out and you're like, where'd that come from? Yeah. And it was like, and it's like, that, that wasn't from me. That was from yeah. the, was it the universe. And just, you have this like super subconscious AI system that just kind of kicks out data. 
Now, you were talking about something earlier about um, getting around people that were just massively better than you, and then and it humbled you, which kind of I feel is, is a great way uh, to get out of those funks is if you get severely humbled and you can you can appreciate the other situations. Is that was that your when you're talking about that? We're talking about going into id, or is that another situation where you got? I mean, I went into id in my low twenties, right? So, yeah. and I was a, an emotional wreck. I was still like mostly hormones and. Um, I, I was, you know, really only a few years into these social experiments that I had deferred all through grade school. Um, and so, uh, meeting Carmack, especially and working with him closely, uh, really kind of did a number on my self-esteem, right? Uh, because here I grew up one of the best coders in class, you know, mm. um, and then suddenly <laughs> I'm not worse than Carmack. I'm orders of magnitude worse than Carmack, right? And nobody told me that John Carmack was fucking John Carmack, right? Uh, at the time, I thought he was just, you know, he's just some coder in the game industry. Uh, you know, obviously talented, but I didn't have a frame of reference, right? So I thought, oh my God, I'm stupid. Like, I just really didn't even understand how dumb I am. Uh, and I, I think that was a healthy thing to really in a way to have that kind of uh, early exposure of like, wow, you really are, you really are way dumber than you think um, because there's people out there that are smart. But I, I think uh, really what helped me build it back up again uh, and thank God was to start to see Carmack's blind spots, right? Uh, when I started to realize, oh, he, he's, he sees in certain spectrums really clearly, right? Um, and then it was when I started to realize, oh, he's got these, He's got these big blind spots. It's hard to spot them because he speaks with the same level of confidence about these blind spots that he does about the things that he's absolutely 110% right on. Um, and he, you know, he's probably less used to being, or was at the time, probably less used to being challenged because he was right 90% of the time, you know? Yeah. So it, it made me realize like, you know, even really smart people can, can be wrong, can be flawed, right? And I and I, I tend to be at least as inspired by other people's flaws as I am by their strengths. By their flaws in terms of you see them embracing them, you see them announcing them, you see them adjusting to them, how so? Um, just by seeing that they exist. Um, oh. It's such a comfort um, to me to know that um, here are these things that, because usually the ones that jump out at me are the ones that for whatever reason, I, I can do more easily, right? I, I can overcome more easily, right? Uh, and so when I see those flaws, I'm like, oh God, I could kick ass at that and you suck at it, right? And, uh, and it's like, thank God, because you're just way too good at everything else, you know? It's like so. starting a race like three quarters of the way done, you know? And uh, you get that, you get that, I'm already ahead of the race, let's go. It's like, for some reason, there's this odd gratification I get when I make a checkbox list of things to do and then I already did two or three of the things already and I can just check them off. Like it's a needless yeah. writing down check off thing, but it feels good because you're like, I'm ahead of the ball. But then the, 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 the sucking part has, has the benefit. How did you, cause I do know when someone is really insert awesome, uh, you could be very attractive, could be very powerful, could be very wealthy, whatever that type of thing. And you're talking about not getting challenged the same thing. Like in VR, you have this drift 
because you're not being checked. And so you have the tendency to drift way off course. And But because you're really good at a thing, you're going to continue to drift because no one's checking you. Is talking to John Carmack the way that you were able to kind of bring up these difficult conversations and calm these resolutions and, and, and be able to kind of pleasantly state talking to him or talking about him what did you say talking talking to him yeah get, like challenging him on topics where there might be blind spots or no i generally didn't challenge him on topics where there might be blind spots i just fed off the fact that they existed <laughs> <laughs> i just uh, i just drew sustenance from them yeah yeah. Um, yeah no most of my conversations with carmack i think at the time you just didn't have a lot of geeky people to talk to i had just come out of school with an electrical engineering degree um, and you had a code and um, and so I think the combination of those things were just a pretty different perspective than what other people at the company had mm -hmm. and so he would kind of like single me out for these uber geeky conversations where frankly he was talking way over my head using long Latin words that I would have to like rush off to the computer to look up after a conversation so that was a part of the dick shortening uh, mm -hmm. experience with chatting with Carmack um, obviously I was learning, you know, piles from that uh, and, and even more just from reading his code um, and and asking him about technical problems and he would give me his insights on it. I'd be like, oh my God, that's fucking brilliant. You know, just uh, stuff like that. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. It's definitely a mixed bag. Like if there, um, there's this thing you learn, uh, you know, I think they teach it even in high school, but certainly they drive it into you in, electrical engineering, which is load matching. Have you heard this expression? I probably showed it with you. Um, so the high school explanation is you've got a battery, um, uh, a perfect battery, which is always, you know, five volts or whatever, right? Of course, no battery is really perfect. Every real battery is a perfect power source with an internal resistor in it, right? And that's called the internal resistance. Uh, and it turns out that if you match the what's called the load, the thing that you're powering with this real battery, if you match the resistance of that load to the internal resistance of the battery, you'll get the most efficient transfer of power, right? Mm. Um, and so uh, that's called load matching, right? And, and in a similar way, um, I think it's true of people too. If you put someone amazingly badass with someone who just sucks balls, um, that's not good load matching. So you're going to see that that amazingly badass person is frustrated by having to carry the weight of this loser. And this loser is going to feel super lame because he just can't carry his weight with the badass, right? Um, or maybe it's even worse and he's got the Dunning-Kruger effect and he thinks he's better than he is, who knows? Um, but uh, the closer they are to load match, I, I find anyway, the better things are. Now, obviously, it's it's nice to be the dumb, the dumbest guy in the room so that you can learn from all the smarter people. But I find that in reality, it's not, you can't judge intelligence on a linear scale, right? It's, it's a very wide heterogeneous vector of like things that we all, that we know about, right? Yeah. And so, you know, thank God too, right? Uh, so it's all the, so, the identity you step into, right? Like yeah. if, gonna, if we talk to me about VR, let's go all day. I'll, I'll, I'll match with most of them. If you're going to talk about football, woo, I'm in trouble. Yeah. Right? And so it just depends on the, on the conversations you get in, in terms of it. But it sounds like load matching is almost like it's, it's uh, friction. It's it, if there's no friction and then it, then the onboarding is easy. So if you speak the same language and you're actually able to communicate it and the, and the, the data can get transferred across. Easily, yeah. 
because we understand the exact same language versus if you're trying to tell me something and you speak uh, Spanish, I speak English, the, 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 because we're not able to match that, the, 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 the channels for connection and communication, then yeah. there's, there's all that friction or it's going to take me I yeah. know, half an hour explaining what a cat is. Yeah. So that's super interesting. So how did you, cause I remember, um, when we talked before you're talking about, um, in college, you used to do these crazy tournaments, right? Didn't you used to do like network tournaments or something like that? And yeah. Then, so, um, uh, the, the local IEEE CS, um, mm -hmm. chapter did these, uh, local programming contests at the school mm -hmm. and, um, where they would uh, make a game and then the competitors would show up and write AI to play the game on their behalf, right? And then the AI that beat all the other AIs was the winner of the contest. You know, the author of that AI is the winner yeah. of the contest. And um, then that went to a state level and I got sort of involved with those and, um, you know, programming the games. Uh, and then I decided, hey, I want to do a national one, and that, um, and so that, that was really ambitious. And and this was one of the early examples of me doing something I'm really not qualified to do, but kind of that theory of just jump in and and be naive about it, mm. and then as the deadline looms, you'll find just how desperate you are to do it, um, and. Um, and yeah, it turns out, you know, they had issues, uh, but um, at the same time, like uh, it, it turned into these amazing contests where we got programmers from Berkeley and Stanford and MIT and all these badass schools to fly in. And we made some of the first, uh, you know, 48 player games, real time action games on Unix workstations. And we would give each, competitor, their own workstation, which at the time, these things cost $20,000 minimum, right? Easily up to 50 or more. And uh, they'd get their own workstation to run their own AI on. They'd all be talking over sockets and to the game server and do the thing. And um, uh, and, and that, uh, and I think that's where I first discovered that I had sort of a talent for um, pitching a big pitching a big idea to folks with money, right? Mm. Um, and I didn't, that's not what I wanted to be good at. I wanted to be better at programming than I was at the time. I was programming these things too, and I'm doing not a great job at it, you know, as best as I could at the time, but uh, it's kind of uh, wobbly. And, did, and you participate? Uh, did you participate in the program as well? Did you? I, I wrote the code, I wrote the game. I wrote, the, yeah, I wrote the games uh, or co-wrote the games. Um, but uh, I was also organizing the events, right? Um, and that, and and I, I found that I was much better at organizing the events than I was at um, uh, writing the games, right? Writing the games is more monastic. It's very like hunker down and do it. And, and organizing the events is more, hey, let me tell you about this thing I'm doing. Why'd you come on board? You know, is more, you know. Chatty. I'm surprised you found the time because I know like with hackathons, like I've thrown a number of them and like when I throw them and I try to code in them, it's impossible because people are always grabbing you and pulling you and, and, and you're, you're like, you want to sit down. So you have to either be incredibly rude and say, no one talked to me. I know I threw this, but I ain't got time. For oh, you. no, wait a minute. I didn't compete in them. No, you just, you created I, the framework for that. Yeah, exactly. I wrote the oh. games over the preceding year and then, um, and then they show up 
and they have like a day and a half to write the AI. Oh God. So, so they're making the, the NPCs inside the game, the non-player right. characters. That's right. So you basically said, okay, look, I've built the digital room. Now you guys build the bots inside of the room to do battle. I've de right? developed the digital room in secret, right? Okay. And it's not just a room. It's a whole game. Like it's a, it's a game written from scratch over the course of yeah. a year. And, uh, and it's got an API for you to write your own NPC, right? Yeah, so yeah. that that was uh, uh, so I, I found I was much better at organizing the events than I was at doing the coding. Um, but it was on the strengths of those contests, I think partially, mm -hmm. that got me the job it did. Um, so uh, <laughs> and then I showed up and realized, oh my God, I'm woefully underqualified, and I better learn. And it, and it was another one of these, you know, dive deep things of like. I, I, you know, I'm underqualified to do this. I need to push myself to kind of just mm -hmm. tread water, right? Yeah. Uh, was there moments that you had, like, because you, you can talk about the, the dark moments where, like, I, I mean, I've heard stories of you passing out and them drawing things around you because you, you code into the ground and you, and you literally are unconscious and, and, and you know, half, half alive from this whole experience. But was there ever a moment where you felt like you rounded the corner or would it always feel like you're in the darkness? Was there, was there any point where you actually started to gain that self-belief that you're you're making progress enough to keep up with these high-level badasses? Yeah, I mean, all you have to do is start reading other people's code and you're like, oh my God, you know, that's that's vile. Uh, and that, that, that put a spring in my step. I was like, oh, okay, at least I have good taste, right? Yeah. Um, and... And I, I don't know if you've experienced this. Uh, I certainly have. I think on every project I ever work on mm -hmm. is that it's when I come back to it like a year later or something um, that I'm both appalled at how bad my code was back then compared to now. So I see the growth, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm also astonished at how much I got done. Like, holy shit, who wrote that? Oh, that was me, you know? So there's this there's this two pronged like oh my god that's awful and oh my god I can't believe I wrote all that uh, I, thing that I'm struck by. One of the things I learned with that is in terms of how important comments are in the code. And oh so yeah. I was like, how did my past self figure this out? I don't understand how I solved this, but good for you. It's um, like it's like a math test where like they get I get right. all of the like the the person gets all of the like work up to the problem wrong, but then the answer right. I'm like yeah. I don't understand what what voodoo, how you knew to put that in there, but somehow it works. So nobody touched anything. We're just going to keep this, I'm going to keep this ball rolling. <laughs> yeah. Don't give me a second to grab one of these oranges. Sure. Sure. <laughs> keep going. Love it. So, so in there, you were, you were able to learn that you you were both woefully underprepared, but you're also other people were mortal. So it gave you the confidence that you could get there. Yeah. Right? Along that or path. that maybe I never would and and that maybe we're all just flawed, right? And get get over it kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, with that, like, cause you got you so you, you you did it and you did all the amazing work there and then you left off to do like game production and kind of you know out on out into your own uh, own world there. Did did you learn like design principles from there, or what did? How did you start to go shifting to the game production side, and and what was that? What was that journey like? On the design side, um, you know, back in the days of ID, right, uh, the early '90s, um, 
I guess they're still around. Um, but back in the early 90s, when you're making a game as a coder uh, or an artist, you're you're not as hyper-specialized back then as you are now, right? Uh, or can be now. And so the programmer is sometimes also the artist, is also the designer, right? So uh, even on Doom, I found myself, and Quake, I found myself doing some design as well as code. I had some experience from that. Of course, I designed games for those programming contests. Um, and uh, I think part of that is just, um, you know, having appreciating other games. Um, again, letting that seep in, not necessarily having it tell you what to make for your game, but letting it bubble up and bubble things up in your mind. Um, and and I don't know, kind of just uh, again, it sounds trite, but just trusting your gut, right? Um, if something comes up, uh, especially if it puts a big smile on my face or if it makes me laugh. Um, or I get sort of like, oh God, this could be cool, right? If you see this potential in it, um, just go with that, even if you don't fully understand why yet. You know what I mean? So yes, yeah, so you're mostly an intuitive kind of. Oh yeah, designer. absolutely. So you're feeling it, and you're like, okay, I got something here. This is, and then that giggles, the giggles, and then the what I always know is going to be a feature creep goes with, wouldn't it be cool? And that is the that is the preempt of I'm going to insert something in here that may not make sense, but it excites me. And uh, getting into what I did before with before um, virtual reality and stuff I had in, in, the, in the food business and things that excited me there, and then getting into VR and those things excite me. That that following your gut through the things that excite you is something that that definitely leads you into places where it does bring a lot of joy. And generally, if you enjoy it, then other people too uh, do as well. Are you right now with, is there any of the new technologies like VR or other types of things that excite you, that gets you like, oh, this is something I want to get into and, and mm. something that you want to start like, like exploring more? So VR doesn't excite mm. me much. Um, I like programming it a lot mm. because of the harsh frame rate demands. And for some reason, I'm just a fiend for like optimizing code. Um, but I find, you know, I've got uh, three VR devices, including the one you just sent me on my desk, and um, I haven't used them in ages. Um, I'm not drawn to like, hey, I want to use this now. Now, of course, until the Quest, I didn't have a standalone thing where it's easy to just pop on and off. Um, and, you know, if I get around this little cell phone excitement, then uh, we'll, we'll see if that changes my habits. But um, uh, as far as tech that really kind of turns me on these days, um, you know, I'd say it's um, games like Eco um, that are teaching people to collaborate together to form governments and civilizations to do complex things together. Um, I'd say it's... What, what about or, what excites you? Is it the fact that you're helping make the world a better place? Is it that because it transforms people? Is there, is, is I, I don't want to do it personally. I am excited about that kind of thing influencing children uh, mm -hmm. to become the game designer legislators of tomorrow. So I, um, I'm deeply underwhelmed by our system of, uh, of governance and commerce, as you know. Yeah. Um, and 
I uh, and I see these virtual systems as ways to bring proper gamification technique into complex systems of societal motivation, right? Yeah. And uh, you know, where's where's the playpen for that, right? Where, you know. You know, you could be a Machiavellian little kid and say, okay, you stand over here in the sandbox and you go over here and you grab the pail and you go over here and do this. Um, but, you know, unless you're some sort of narcissistic sociopath, it's hard to manipulate children to do the things you want them to do and to learn and certainly not a safe learning environment, right? Um, because you might scar these other kids. Uh, but, but, you know, when you have these virtual environments where it's safe to try these things and fuck up huge, I think that's uh, really that's really just personally exciting to me, yeah. uh, because I, I see the potential for what it could how it could transform our future of governance and commerce. Yeah, what would you like to see? I mean, in terms of you know transformational, I mean, it could be. Uh, it, I think, yeah, young kids uh, definitely take VR and other types of cutting edge technologies like a fish to water, even more so than you know you know, my generation in a sense, because they just, they'll just absorb it and, and they're, they're in it. So there's a lot more opportunity because you, I've noticed this with younger kids, like my niece and my nephew, they just do whatever they want and, and yeah. they can tell them, but they're going to, they're going to just slip out, you know, whether it's a, a survival mechanism and they just absolutely just don't pay attention or if it's just, just how they're hardwired. It's just, they just do what they want. So, you know, what would you like to see, like in terms of like, like, um, that type of thing that would have an effect on the young young kids. What would you like to? Are you trying to teach them, you know, more sustainable habits to inspire them to be better to each other? Would it be to like what are the what are those types of things that you know you really would hope some other people pick up the torch and run with? Well, I think like too many of us, I see these huge gaps in our education systems to learn critical thinking, mm -hmm. to learn positive collaboration techniques to learn about creative ways to implement commerce and governance. Um, and they're just largely overlooked by our kind of industrialized curriculum, right? And, yeah. I, and so those are the sorts of things I'm really excited about. How would you structure it? I mean, you know, imagine imagine uh, uh, Dave Taylor uh, got- Dave, Dave Topia? Yeah, got, got brought to the future and he was a, a young, scrappy young kid uh, who could who could do some programming and uh, and 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 talk a big game, uh, you know, back in the college days? How would you how would you like structure this type of you know intuitive uh, kind of style of design? Would you would you restructure competitions where you bring these people together and they're all designing and working on these types of things and you'd you'd create the framework for that? Or what would you what would you think would make a, a lot of sense if there was like a young Dave trying to do this? Um, so a great experience I find is one which is curated to a certain degree or moderated. So I think back to my favorite games of Dungeons and Dragons. I think back to my favorite parties that I've attended. I think back to events that I really got a lot out of. There's always someone running these things, whether it's a dungeon master or an event organizer or someone throwing a party that kind of gamifies the the system so that we're encouraged to interact that we're encouraged to explore uh we're encouraged to push ourselves um and the better they are at sort of game mastering our these little miniature universes for us 
the more compelling it is for us, right? So the the beautiful vision I have for the future, my version anyway, hmm. is uh, I I I I, can, I think of the Earth as sort of like a zoo. Only there's no zookeepers, and the primates got out of the primate cage, and they shat all over everything, and ate all the other animals' food, and killed some off for meat, and um, and just kind of made a mess of things, right? So I'm personally really, really excited about seeing um, super intelligent AI develop that could be that new zookeeper, right? Mm -hmm. That so primates go back in their cage, um, and uh, but not only that, but suddenly all the cages are like utopian awesome, right? Uh, compared to how they were before when the primates started, you know, spoiling everything. And so I, I'm excited about a hyper-intelligent AI to act as a global level game master, essentially, yeah. uh, to make our lives fun and exciting um, and to manipulate us in all the ways we like to be manipulated push ourselves right um that that i'm stoked about i'm also really stoked about the idea uh, of cameras absolutely and sensors absolutely everywhere um and uh using those to essentially pick up uh on the nuanced things that we're doing for each other that are that are good for society right uh and realizing worth from those endeavors as opposed to you know brushing them under the rug uh, so those are two things that really, really strongly appeal to me. Touch on one and or both of those. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. If you look at, say, Dungeons and Dragons, the old school, you know, what I consider the original VR, our imagination of coming together and thinking. And, and there is a dungeon, there's a literal dungeon master, whether it was Carmack back in the day or somebody else who's crafting these cur curated worlds in Dungeons and Dragons. And then what happened was game progr programmers that love Dungeons and Dragons started programming games. And then they started making Dungeons and Dragons types of game experiences. And it seems that that create a world, a curated world where there's a dungeon master and a purpose and a mythos and a whole thing. And it, it went from being first in books in Dungeons and Dragons to being on like, you know, computers and PCs. Yeah. Now, you know, people are trying to create these, you know, uh, massive uh, MMORPG, uh, was it MMO? MMORPG, yeah. Yeah, RPGs. Um, and they're now doing VR versions of that where there's so many animes where, you know, there's this super AI intelligence things, whether it's uh, James Halliday from uh, Ready Player One or, you know, insert any of these other ones where they actually create this world. Some Carmackian character programs this AI, lets it loose, and then it kind of creates this type of thing and that we then live in and we get to experience and thrive in, you know, assuming that it doesn't go the, you know, Terminator Skynet path, right? Which is always, a, as I say, technology is a race between utopia and disaster. So, you know, is what it is. But is that is that what's that appeal that Dungeons and Dragons and because I, I love it too and I, I I read books on it and I listen to it and I'm fascinated with it and I also like that idea that you know super AI you know watching all but also curating a, a greater world what is that like what is that fascination and where do you think that's leading to well my personal fascination with it um, I think is just born of the things that game programmers have done for me and the games I loved and how carried away they got me and engaging in their systems and being motivated by them, even if they were real grinds. If it was done well, man, I would, I was all in. And, um, um, you know, and then my own 
limited success at throwing these fancy parties for the game industry for a while where, um, you know, it was just a response to what we weren't getting out of parties at game industry events. And I really just focused on all the things I personally wanted in a party um, and which were very different from very different from what we were getting. And to see how strongly everybody responded to that um, to the point where I was even being asked to do it for for pay, right? Um, that was uh, that was incredibly rewarding because it wasn't just the oh you know nice job Dave you know job well done it was seeing the results of you know and hearing about the results of what they discussed at these parties and what happened to them as a result of coming to these things and and going off and the ideas they shared and the people they met um, for some reason that was like crack to me. And um, yeah, it was, uh, uh, I, I think it was those two things. It was watching what DMD could do for me, a really compelling campaign with a great yeah. DM. Uh, it was watching what games could do to me, like no matter how grindy or whatever it was, and, and watching what a, um, uh, you know, what a, what a great party. My mom is actually just an amazing host of parties, right? Um, and, uh, seeing her throw a party and how cool they were, just the amazing food, the amazing everything, the presentation, the guests that would show up to these things as a result of knowing, oh my God, it's it's Sherry Taylor's party, uh, you know, you gotta be there. Um, that I think uh, left an impression, you know, as a kid, I didn't appreciate it, uh, of course, but looking back on it, I was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And then then sampling some of them as an adult, I just, I think uh, all that. Well, it know. seems like a, a combination of like you're saying, like the, the, the joy you got from other people giving you this kind of experience of being a party goer or, you know, a player in the game, you being the dungeon master in like real life creating this type of stuff. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, you know, original incidents from childhood and that kind of joy. And then along with actually getting recognition and significance, from, yeah. from people saying like, and so you kind of have that like that spot where it's like it's valuable. You enjoy it. People find recognition. You get paid for it, and it's just yeah. like that sweet spot of all the awesomeness all bundled into one. Exactly. One delicious, all organic bite. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Then the uh, the looking into uh, tracking everything, putting up cameras everywhere. You know, creating this you know 1984 style where everything's watching, but in a very positive, loving light. But you're saying in terms of to create social accountability, create personal accountability, because people always say, uh, if you want to be the hero of your own story, um, you know, get followed. Uh, imagine that a documentary company is following you around. Imagine that you know, uh, you know, you are the 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 someone's following you around. And you're the, the the star of the movie. Is your goal and intention say if I put up cameras everywhere, then then there's this continuous social accountability going on, uh, whether it's a super AI watching it um, or whatever, and in this type of environment, and that's kind of why you want to set up this uh, all things being monitored, or is it bringing it into almost like what games are, where you can track everything, and now you can you, it gives you more access to be able to gamify the system. It's both, uh, but I'm gonna. It, the accountability, I'm going to redefine what you call accountability. Mm -hmm. When we say accountability, 
we're usually talking about something unpleasantly adult, responsibility and the liability of doing something wrong, right? It's all very kind of heavy. It's accountability, right? But accountability to me means are you doing the accounting, right? Mm -hmm. And when you do the accounting, you get both positives and you get negatives, and they're small and they're big and they're medium. They're all these different ranges, right? Um, if I help a little old lady across the street, the accountability of that is not is not added to my ledger, right? That is not accounted for. I cannot pay a piece of my rent with that. There, I, there is countless little good deeds that we do. Uh, I can eat vegan every day for the rest of my life with our current system. I will get fuck all for that, right? Even though I'm saving enormous amounts of carbon footprint uh, for other people, there is no... There is no social credit for this, zero. Um, so there's all these little things like that where, where the positive effects of the good deeds we do go unaccounted for. Um, and so, or, or, or maybe they do get accounted for, but in ways that aren't liquid. Therefore, you can't use them to pay for these liabilities you have, like rent or food or whatever. So I am, I'm definitely interested in seeing more holistic gameplay. Um, you know, if you put money in any game, um, it, it's it's usually a corrupting influence, right? It, it tends to compete with your gameplay mechanics because it reduces the value of things down to a one-dimensional line. Um, and this has very clear uh, consequences as a gameplay mechanic. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've always considered scalar money as an invasive gameplay mechanic, the kudzu of economies, right? Um, and it has so grossly shaped our lives, even this conversation we're having right now, that um, it has just, you know, warped them out of any recognition of what they once were before we had liquid money like this. Mm. And the the less I see money influencing uh, someone's life, um, I, I generally find the more wholesome that life is, the more complete it is. Um, and so that's, and, and part of what you get out of universal sensors and cameras is the ability to throw away money and to skip it and go straight to the transfer of goods and services without money as that intermediary step. And uh, you, there's just a lot less information loss there. There's a lot of efficiency savings, and there's a lot of gameplay opportunities from that. That's interesting. Yeah, what you're saying is, if I uh, to reflect back on this, is that being a good person isn't always uh, doesn't always create value, even though there is social value in it. And you know, you know, you are a good person. You can't pay your bills with that. You can't do X, Y, and Z. Yeah, but you're, you're doing it. Money's fucked up your vocabulary. You just said there's no value in doing something good. Well, there I'm is value in doing something good. Monetary valuable. You I can't, know. You can't exchange it for goods and services. Now, you can maybe change it for exactly. favors or, or exactly. reciprocity, as we talked about earlier. Maybe. But if, I, if I help an old lady across the street, I can't go buy eggs with that. That That's is, right. And then the challenge was is, is that we took a natural human um 
uh, human or I don't know, maybe primal uh, mammal thing of reciprocity where uh, if you if you give me bananas, I, I eat the, the lights out of your hair. And yeah. that is, is it was the one to one. But we made it more efficient by, by making things more efficient. We lost a piece of our humanity the yeah. same way that, you know, we went from hunter and gatherers to agriculture, agriculture to the city life. We went to the city life. It was more efficient. But then we lost a piece of our our human selves. You're saying that the by scalar money, a.k.a the money as we know it today, it only shows you one value set of the money, not how the money was aggregated, not how it was created, not, not was a byproduct that if I show you a dollar, we don't know if that dollar was generated uh, from a holistic practice done from someone in Austin, Texas, yeah. or from destroying the planet and, and, you know, you know, uh, polluting the environment. And yeah. so they, they look identical, but they but the origins are different. And yeah. so, and so there's an innate flaw in the system and so yeah. if we were able to track everything, we could start to tally up all of the value that we we're creating, a total, a, a totality, a total value of an actual, yeah, the byproduct of a person's existence. And you could say this person's this valuable because they've provided a thousand meals to people for Thanksgiving. Or they this eat- person is not, when you say this person is this value, that value is not a number, right? That value can be estimated with a bunch of numbers, mm-hmm. um, but it is definitely not one number. Well, um, it's like looking at health. Well, what's your health? Is it your weight? Is it your yeah, blood pressure? Exactly. Your, exactly. Your yeah. It, it's a system. Yeah. The, 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 and it's the, a complex the, system, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. So then the, in your future and what you would love to create is a, is a world without, cause I, I, I've seen talks from you, which is, I thought were, which were awesome, but you're talking about getting rid of scalar money, AKA the current money as we have it. And if we actually created a new game, a new way to play, we could actually create uh, a better system because as soon as we injected money into the system, people want to gain the system because then you know it's no longer about creating natural value in a humanistic way. It's how do I get that money at all costs because that's the game, and then we'll play whatever game. We yeah, we've, we've come up with all these pseudo religions about mm. the value of karma and like mm. how being how doing favors is going to pay off for you after a while or whatever. It's like it'll be great, you know, and and it's like. Okay, maybe it will pay off, but it's a very fuzzy, non-systematized thing, right? Yeah. Any game designer would just sort of roll their eyes and go, "Okay, well, maybe it'll work, but you better have a kick-ass DM that recognizes these nuanced things that you're doing for the company and and makes them pay off for that person doing the nuanced things, right?" Um, and you know, it just doesn't scale, right? Um, to have that DM watching, you know, seven, eight billion people. Uh, if it's a mere mortal human doing it, right? Yeah. That's part of why I think we need a super intelligence to do that. Yeah, no, th- and that would be the, the the dream of most gamers is to is to make to take the the, the purity of what's inside the game world and bring it out into it. Because one of the things I love, same thing about why I like music, is that you look at the 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 was it the verb of a game is to play. Right to yeah. play, and it's not like, oh, I've got to go, I got to go work this game. Yeah, never, never heard that ever. And it's like, and it's, and it's, 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 is it something I'm forced to do it because there's something else attached to it, or I'm doing it because I want to do it and I love it and I enjoy yeah. it? Because you're cracking out on it. Yeah, and if we can bring that into the real world, where your game is, how many people can I make smile today? How much yeah. joy can I bring? Or how much, how much can I, can I, can I reduce my carbon footprint? Whatever the, those things might be, that is a, an intrinsic value. It feels more, um deeply rewarding on a human level yeah yeah 
Yeah, and, I, and you know, it'd be nice if I could feed myself on it too every once in a while. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a, a multiple points of it's it's reinforcing that game mechanic so that it's not just about because we're we're both right. We we want the harmony, but we also want to be honest. And also, the same thing is that we're we we want to make the world a better place, but we're also selfish and we want to be able to live and thrive. And so yeah. it's like it's that it, it, to deny one side is to is to is to really numb yourself. Um, almost like when you're talking about the human system and I was thinking about money, it makes me think of like almost like taking a vitamin or like taking like a pain pill versus like, well, maybe you should diet, exercise, live right, meditate and that stuff. It's like, well, that's a lot of work. Can I just take this pill? Like, yeah. Well, you can, but there is consequences to the system. Yeah. All right. I love it. Um, Dave, this has been awesome, man. I, I really appreciate your time. Um, we're going to be wrapping things up right now, but is there any last things you'd like to say before you tell people how they can get a hold of you? Uh, uh, I don't have anything burning on my mind, uh, but uh, how to get a hold of me? Do I want people to get a hold of me? I know. Or not? They can get a hold of me through you. <laughs> I don't think they can, Dave. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, if you say, "Hey, Dave, I got okay. contacted by somebody that you ought to talk to," then uh, I'm going to believe you. I'll, I I will be your filter, sir. I will be your filter. You're damn good at it. <laughs> well, I very much appreciate this, brother. Um, have a have a, a a blessed and wonderful rest of your day, and um, and I'm sure we'll chat soon. Cool, dude. All right, brother. I'll talk to you later. I'll see you. All right, see you. Thank you for listening to the Heroes of Reality podcast. Check out heroesofreality.com for more episodes. While you're there, you can also take the Heroes Quiz to find out what kind of hero you are. Or, if you have a great story and want to be on the podcast, tell us why your hero's journey will inspire others. Thank you for listening. See you on the other side.